Welcome to Understanding the UK National Security and Investment Regime. The introduction of the new investment screening regime marks a watershed moment for the government's powers to intervene in corporate transactions. In this podcast series, we will be providing you with insight into what's driving the new regime, how it will operate in practice and its particular impact on those sectors most affected. This podcast is brought to you by DLA Piper. My name is Sarah Smith and I'm a partner in the firm's competition practice. I'm delighted to be hosting this podcast series and will be joined by DLA Piper's competition, government affairs and sector specialists over coming weeks. In previous episodes, we have covered the political context for the new regime, discussed its legal background and considered the industrials and technology sectors. In this episode, the fifth of the series, we discuss the impact of the regime on the transport sector. To discuss this, I'm joined by two of my colleagues, Richard Jenkinson, a senior associate in the competition team, and Martin Nelson-Jones, a partner and the global chair of DLA Piper's Infrastructure, Construction and Transport Group. So, Richard, if I can come to you first. The new NSNI regime clearly has wide-ranging implications for M&A activity involving businesses or assets connected with the UK. We've talked about this in detail in a previous episode. However, it would be helpful if you could give us a quick overview, a quick recap of the legal structure of the regime today to frame our discussion about the transport sector. Well, the new rules came into force on the 4th of January 2022, and they give the government the ability to investigate acquisitions that could harm the UK's national security. Now, some transactions, so one where the target is active in one of 17 identified sectors, are subject to mandatory notification, and the remainder are subject to a voluntary regime. Now, this regime applies to both the acquisition of qualifying entities and qualifying assets, provided that the entity or asset is from, in or has a connection to the UK and the level of control that you acquire over the qualifying entity or qualifying asset meets or passes a certain threshold. Now, the government is able to impose some conditions on acquisitions which raise national security concerns, and this includes, in some circumstances, unwinding or blocking an acquisition. In certain circumstances also, there are going to be civil or criminal penalties, particularly where a transaction in a mandatory sector is not notified. So transactions are therefore going to need to be closely assessed going forward. And Martin, you've been thinking a bit about what this means in practice, haven't you? Yes, I just wanted to flag a a few points that um, would be relevant to M&A transactions. The first thing to bear in mind is that when you're looking at whether a filing is needed. This will depend on the nature of the target business rather than the identity of the potential purchaser or or the nature of its business. Um, Although clearly, when you come to the substantive analysis and looking at whether a transaction may be blocked, the identity of the purchaser will be relevant. Second point to mention is that it is a mandatory and suspensory regime. So where the mandatory filing is required, the SPA will need to be conditional on that filing and on it not being blocked. The regime applies to minority stakes as well as to total purchases or control purchases. So moving on to our discussion specifically about the transport sector, which is clearly very broad in scope and would cover everything from cars to cargo ships, Martin, which parts of the transport sector are covered within the mandatory notification regime? 
Yeah, so the mandatory filings are required for the acquisition of an entity carrying out a, a relevant activity. And these are defined to catch uh, three areas of operation in the transport sector. Firstly, ports. Secondly, airports. And thirdly, air traffic control. It's worth mentioning that rail, rail and roads are not in the mandatory regime at all, nor are modes of transport themselves. So airlines are not covered, nor is a shipping line. So, Richard, what exactly is within the scope of those three categories? Well, let's start first with ports. Acquiring an entity that owns or operates a UK port, which the previous year handled at least one million tonnes of freight, or an entity which owns or operates terminals, wharves or other infrastructure um, at a port triggers the mandatory filing obligation. With respect to qualifying airports, Acquiring an entity that owned or operated an airport, which in 2018 had at least 6 million passenger movements or handled at least 100,000 tonnes of freight, is also a qualifying event. Acquiring an entity operating en route air traffic control systems or owning an entity that does is also a mandatory qualifying event. Now, those listeners who will be familiar with merger control and the fact that certain merger control jurisdictional thresholds bite on market shares, which can be ambiguous in some cases, should be able to breathe a bit of a sigh of relief here because all of these statutory definitions are with reference to specific publications, specific licenses. So, for example, with respect to ports, the thresholds for a million tonnes of freight are a million tonnes of freight according to the port freight annual statistics which are published by the government. The upshot of this is that everything in the transport sector with a mandatory filing requirement is tied to the acquisition of an entity which operates in one of these sectors within the UK. This is not the case of the filing obligation being tripped if you buy, say, a port in France. The acquisition of mere assets, for example, the port itself rather than the operator of the port, is not caught by the mandatory filing requirement, but this might be subject to call-in still. Now, the government's consultation also made it very clear that the mandatory filing obligation doesn't capture companies that undertake specific operational roles at airports. So, for example, an aircraft ground handler, an MRO provider, or someone else who is in the provision of other passenger services such as catering or retail. They might operate at an airport whose acquisition would trigger the mandatory filing obligation, but the acquisition of entities that provide these services at the airport does not require a filing. Thanks, Richard. That's very interesting. So it seems that in the transport sector... Actually, the scope of of entities and transactions that are potentially caught by the mandatory regime is perhaps more narrow than some of the other mandatory sectors, which, as we've discussed previously, are, are pretty broad in scope. So perhaps it bears talking in a bit more detail about the voluntary regime and and the call-in powers, which I think you mentioned previously. Could you talk to us a bit more about those call-in powers and how they operate and why they might be particularly important in the transport sector? Well, the mandatory notification regime essentially exists to support the call-in powers of the Secretary of State. Now, the Secretary of State is able to call in for assessment an acquisition which they reasonably suspect has or may give rise to national security concerns. This power isn't just limited to mandatory notifications, it's wherever there's a potential national security concern. Now, national security, it's important to note, 
is not defined here. So it can be a variety of things. The government's given a bit of a steer as to what it's concerned about, and I think we'll talk about that later, but it's not clearly defined in the statute. So with respect to the transport sector, we have a fairly narrow set of entities, operators of certain UK ports, airports or air traffic control systems where the mandatory notification obligation exists. But there are other activities in the transport sector which might need to be considered with respect to their national security risk, as they too might be called in. So Martin, with your M&A hat on, what might this mean for parties to transaction in practical terms when they're thinking about how to structure the deal? So I think this will lead to debates about risk allocation, where we're talking about non-mandatory filing and who bears the risk of a transaction being called in in those circumstances. Generally speaking, unless the SBA provides otherwise, then that is going to be a risk on the buyer in normal circumstances. However, of course, it would be possible if the parties agree to include an SBA condition, even where a filing is not mandatory. So that would be similar to the sort of debates that one has around the UK non-mandatory antitrust filing regime. And that comes down then to a, a question of risk allocation between the buyer and the seller and whether the seller is willing to accept the inclusion of an SBA condition, even where it isn't mandatory. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the position is, as as you say, that there will be, for all parties to all transactions, but in particular in this sector, an analysis will need to be done as to whether or not they're within those specific mandatory areas. And then if they're not, buyers will need to consider whether there is a risk of being called in and therefore whether they wish to make a voluntary notification and negotiate a condition in, as you say, the same way that one would in a merger control context in the UK. So that really begs a further question for parties and and operators in the transport sector of, well, what do we think are the high risk areas? Which types of transaction are most likely to be called in? And it's, it's obviously very early days, but do you have any thoughts on which kinds of businesses do you think will be most at risk? Yes. So, I mean, the Secretary of State has published some guidance in this area, as it was required to do. In relation to mandatory notifications, they've given a very clear policy steer that they will focus on larger airports and ports and air traffic control. They've also indicated that they would look at asset acquisitions if technically They might not be caught by the mandatory filing, but they would have been caught if the acquisition had been of the operating entity rather Mm -hmm. than the assets. So that's a sort of anti-avoidance type mechanism just to avoid a technical loophole. Where you're looking at acquisitions of entities outside the UK and without a close connection to the UK, then that is less likely to be called in, not surprisingly. And then finally, as I mentioned before, While the mandatory notification regime does not depend on what the acquirer does or the identity of the acquirer, whether or not a non-mandatory transaction gets called in will likely depend on the identity of the acquirer and the nature of its activities. Richard, any other steers that have been given? Well, 
The guidance statement given by the Secretary of State, in fact, gives an example of something that might be called in which relates to the transport sector. So this is where uh, source code used by air traffic control operators in the UK, which might potentially be used to identify vulnerabilities used to monitor and communicate with aircraft in UK airspace, is acquired by an acquirer with ties to an organisation or to a state of concern to the UK. Now, here, the Secretary of State's statement says that there will likely be a call in due to the fear that the source code could be used for malicious purposes, whether or not a mandatory notification obligation exists. And this is a really great example of a call in risk, which applies to a supplier of a mandatory notification sector rather than to the sector itself. Going beyond the statement, we can also look at the consultation. Now, during this consultation, several additional categories within the transport sector were proposed with respect to ports. These categories were rejected largely on clarity grounds, essentially because they were hard to define in the statute. They were hard for purchasers to tell whether they applied to them or not. But these are a port which is handling vessels capable of carrying at least 12 passengers, or alternatively, a port which handles a range of goods that are essential to the country. This was defined as a list of things which were regarded as essential to the country, such as water purification, vaccines, medicines, veterinary medicines, essential critical food chain dependencies such as key foods, additives and spare parts for the energy sector. So, for example, if a vital spare part to a power plant had been imported through your port, then the proposal was that the mandatory notification obligation would apply. The UK government did say that all 51 major ports in the UK were going to be covered by the proposed regulation for mandatory notification purposes. And in response to the consultation, the government said that it was still committed to capturing all of these ports. So I think we can be pretty sure that even if your acquisition of one of the UK's 51 most major ports doesn't meet the thresholds because that year it didn't have sufficient volume, the government will still be interested in looking at it from a national security point of view. Equally, if you have, for example, specialist unloading equipment um, that is capable of unloading some of these more essential goods, then you can imagine that the government will be quite interested in your transaction and uh, the Secretary of State may wish to call it in for an in-depth review. As far as airports and air traffic control are concerned, there have been very few changes. There was a change from um, a holding company to a parent undertaking in the description, so it's not very helpful there. Finally, we should think about policy issues. So why has this app been created in the first place? Well, the UK government says that it's worried about what it calls in its consultation, nefarious investment. So, for example, espionage within the sector. So identifying vulnerabilities, accessing sensitive information, which could harm the safety and effectiveness of the transport system. There are also risks around an ability to undertake disruptive or destructive actions, which could endanger lives by creating problems in the movements of critical goods or even compromising passenger safety and undermining public trust. Those are all concerns that the government has in relation to the transport sector. Thank you both. That makes sense. Just listening to you there, Richard, talking about whether air traffic control source code could be caught. I guess it's also possible that those acquisitions involving those sorts of businesses could fall under another mandatory sector if they're supplying the MOD or if they involve AI, etc. 
So that's another possible way in, w- in which these transactions could be caught, even if they are not within the specific definition of transport. But nevertheless, it seems that there is quite a lot of uncertainty here for uh, transport operators who aren't within the regime, but uh, nevertheless seem to be at, at the risk of a, a call in. To what extent is it possible to have informal discussions, pre-notification type discussions with Bayes in order to gain some insight into how they might view a transaction, that call-in risk, and perhaps get some form of comfort, perhaps in a similar way to one can uh, in the merger control context? Richard? So we are familiar, and anyone who's done uh, a merger notification in the UK will be familiar with the system for getting informal assurances from the CMA, which is where a briefing paper is put into the CMA by merging parties who accept that they have a transaction which might be of interest to the CMA, but where the Competition and Markets Authority is unlikely to identify any issues. This allows for informal reassurances that the transaction is not going to be called in by the CMA and it's not going to be required to be held separate while the CMA investigates the transaction. The notification system under the NSNI Act is a very, very different beast. So, first of all, there are expected to be well over a thousand mandatory notifications per year. You can contrast this with something like the 80 merger control notifications that are made to the CMA each year pre-Brexit. Now, post-Brexit, that's going to go up a lot because a lot of transactions which were previously reviewed solely by the European Commission will be reviewed by the CMA and perhaps the European Commission as well. But around about 80 was the figure before. The Merger Intelligence Committee of the CMA, which reviews the briefing papers, maybe reviews a handful of briefing papers every week. So already there are going to be more NSNI notifications per year than not just notifications um, to the CMA, but also notifications plus briefing papers submitted to the CMA every year. And that is just mandatory notifications. There are also going to be a lot of voluntary notifications as well, probably hundreds of those. A voluntary notification is done not to mitigate the risk of call-in, but it does get the issue out of the way before the parties complete the merger. So Before the parties merge, they can have the transaction reviewed and any concerns dismissed so they can carry on um, without having to worry about that. The NSNI document in most circumstances is going to be less arduous, probably, than the uh, Competition and Markets Authority merger notice to fill out and complete and to go through notification. There's even a fairly short character limit for the notification form. So given the relative brevity of this notification form, the fact that well over a thousand notifications are expected every year, it's very hard to see right now where a formal, informal, discussion or briefing paper system would fit in. So our suspicion is that there's little scope to gain assurances through informal discussions with Bayes. Actually, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to make that voluntary notification in order to get that reassurance. Yes, possibly. And, I, and I'm sure that's right in terms of how, how Bayes are expecting the regime to operate. I guess I can see that that isn't perhaps an ideal position for buyers to be in because they're still left, as Martin was explaining earlier, having to engage in that risk allocation negotiation with sellers. And, and if you're doing a voluntary notification, that's something that would presumably need to have conditionality attached and might have implications for the deal and the attractiveness of the buyer. But as you say, that seems to be where we are. And there is at least at the moment limited scope to engage with Bayes on some of these more borderline cases. So thanks for that, Richard. 
Martin, just as we wrap up, do you have any final thoughts, key points that you think it's important for businesses operating in the transport sector to be aware of? I think the main point is the one that we've just been discussing around the potential uncertainties in the non-mandatory areas, because where it is a mandatory filing, it's almost easier for the parties because it's clear that there has to be an SBA condition. Of course, you may still have debates around what level of endeavours people have to use to get the clearance, what sort of conditionality they may have to accept, but at least you're working within a framework of a mandatory and suspensory regime. Where you're in, in that area of not being mandatory, but potentially having a national security issue, so having a risk of the transaction being called in, then as we touched on before, you are into the area of risk allocation debate between the seller and the buyer. And it's rather less clear where that is going to end up than in the mandatory notification area. But clearly now, you know, any party looking at doing an M&A transaction in the transport sector is going to have to be very focused on this act, as in obviously a number of other sectors. So it's very much now an integral part of the transport M&A procedure and needs to be addressed at an early stage and any potential risks identified at an early stage. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Thank you, Martin. Richard, any final thoughts from you? I suppose my final thoughts are, first, that we are already quite used to the idea that if you make an acquisition within the defence sector, then there are going to potentially be national security concerns. And so there's going to be a national security review in not just the UK, but in a variety of countries as well. We are less familiar with the idea that if we acquire, say, a port or an airport or another piece of um, infrastructure or a company which isn't directly related to defence of the realm, then there are going to potentially be national security reviews and mandatory filing obligations there. And transport is one of these sectors where the mandatory notification obligations and the concerns of the authority are related to local policy objectives. So, for example, in a lot of EU member states, roads, railways, airports and water infrastructure are what require the notifications. So that's a very different environment where very different sectors require mandatory notification. The second thing is is just how new a lot of this legislation is. So outside of more obvious sectors such as defence, this is the first time this sort of investor screening for national security has been present in a lot of sectors, including a large amount of um, the transport sector as well. And this is not just the case in the UK for this new regime being introduced. So 18 EU member states now have FDI screening regimes. Four of those systems were introduced in the last two years, and the other 14 are pretty new as well. So clients can't rely on the fact that they did something similar two or three years ago. This didn't raise any national security issues. We didn't have to make any filings. So it'll be fine this time. That's not the case at all. These new regimes are coming up all over the place and they're subtly different from country to country, as the previous example with respect to roads, road acquisitions, sometimes requiring a notification in the EU makes out. So it's a very I suppose, uncertain environment, and it's settling down 
but a lot of people are probably going to get caught out quite quickly, quite soon. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's an important point. It's, a, it's going to be a steep learning curve, I think, for, uh, for certain businesses and, and indeed advisors getting to grips with this new regime and, and others internationally. Well, thank you both. Thank you, Martin and Richard. And thank you to you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of DLA Piper's series, Understanding the UK National Security and Investment Regime. Look out for episode six next week, where we will be discussing the implications of the regime on critical suppliers to government and suppliers to the emergency services. Thanks very much. Mm